You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge Church and happy 4th of July weekend as well. And uh, we did have one neighbor that shot off fireworks. I prayed for them in Jesus' name or maybe for God's wrath or something. Uh, I can't remember. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. But uh, happy 4th of July weekend. Glad you're here. Thank you for being here, all of you in the room. And of course, those of you online, as always, we're just so glad that you're here. My prayer uh, is what Laura said earlier, that this is not routine. Uh, If we're a church that does routine, then we are not worth being a church. Uh, If we are acting as if God and this life is routine and should be routine, then we are not worth it. We need to realize that God wants us to experience Him powerfully, beautifully, real. And so that's my prayer as we dig into God's Word today. Uh, So in the English language, there are sometimes words that we as human beings, sometimes we um, we interchange these words and we, we act like these two different words are the same, you know, meaning. For example, let me give you an example of that. So I've heard these two words interchanged a lot, historic and historical. Have you heard that? Sometimes these two words are interchanged, historic and historical. Now, here's the truth. Historic simply means something that was monumental. It was life-changing. It was universe-altering. It was historical. You know, I mean, historic is like, wow, this is an amazing thing. It had this massive influence. If something is historical, it means it happened in the past. That's it. It just means it happened sometime before now. So, for example, let me give you an example of this. Uh, A couple of mornings ago, I had a banana for breakfast. That's historical because it happened in the past. Nobody would claim that that was historic, right? It didn't have a huge bearing on history or the world, the fact that I ate a banana for breakfast. It's historical, but it's not historic, all right? Let me give you one more example. So, these two words I've heard uh, interchanged quite a bit, redundant and repetitive. Maybe you have even used these words in the same way. You say it's redundant when you mean it's repetitive and vice versa. Well, the truth is these don't mean the same thing. We sometimes think they do. Redundant, actually, if you look at the actual meaning of the word redundant, it means irrelevant or adding nothing of value. It's redundant. Repetitive simply means something that happens over and over and over again. There are a lot of things that are repetitive that I would say, I would argue, are not redundant. For example, brushing your teeth. Very repetitive, I hope, in your life. And I also would uh, hope you agree it's not going to be redundant. It's never going to become irrelevant. You'd be like, you know what? I decided I'm not going to brush my teeth. I'm just saying it's going to be helpful for your teeth. It's going to be helpful for whoever you're talking to especially if you're talking closely to them, right? Repetitive and redundant, two different words. Now, the reason I bring this up is today I want to talk about two words that we tend to interchange in the same kind of a way. But they're two very different words. They're very closely linked together because one has great bearing on the other, but they're not the same, even though sometimes we use them as the same thing. Today, I want to focus on two words. I want you to walk out of here thinking of these two words, and these two words are discernment and decision. Discernment and decision. 
Now, we talk about decisions all the time, but we rarely talk about discernment. And when we talk about discernment, we consider discernment to be the same as a decision. It's not. So let's talk about the difference between these two words before we dig into Scripture, because the Scripture passage that we're going to look at, the person we're going to look at today, had great discernment and great decisions. He's an example of great discernment and great decisions. So discernment is very simply the ability, the skill of accurately assessing, viewing, hearing reality. It's you hearing correctly, it's you seeing correctly, judging correctly what is actually going on. It's discernment. Decision is what you do as a result of your discernment. In other words, you will make decisions based on what you perceive, what you think, what you heard. And so, do you understand that your decision, being a good decision, completely relies on your discernment, how you perceive it, what you think is really going on? Now, I know that I'm already in uncomfortable territory because you're like, ooh, man, we're digging into how I see things, and we're digging into the decisions I make as a result of that, and you're like, "Mm, this is one of those. We're going to dig into personal decisions and why they're so important. Okay? So today, we're going to continue our series that we've been in, Ordinary to Extraordinary. And what we're doing is we're taking a look at ordinary people in the Bible who did extraordinary, amazing things with God and for God. And today is one of my favorite people out of the Bible. His name is Daniel. Daniel's one of those guys that his discernment and his decisions were just amazing. And I don't know about you, but when you're next to somebody who seems to always make the right decision, do they not just drive you nuts? <clears throat> I mean, really, aren't they, aren't they the kind of people you're just like, Ugh. they walk in the room and they're like, here we go. The perfection just walked in the room, right? Anybody ever feel that way? I feel that way about some people. And I'm like, uh-huh, here we go. Yeah, and Daniel was maybe considered to be one of those. In fact, I know he was because of one of the parts of the story that I'm going to tell you today. Daniel was a great, wonderful, wise, discerning, amazing decision maker. And you're going to find that's true because here's what I want to do. I want to tell you two stories about Daniel today. And you're going to learn what his discernment is and how his decisions were reflected in his amazing discernment. His ability to see things accurately and true reality led to great decisions. All right? So let me set up the context for the first story. Uh, So the Babylonians. There's a group of people called the Babylonians, and they were conquering the known world at this time. Okay? And they've expanded their empire, and one of the groups of people that they conquered were the Israelites, the Hebrews. And uh, once they conquered the Hebrews, sorry, excuse me, my throat is... I, I think, did anybody else get smoke in their throat this last week? I seem to be have, uh, have been affected a little bit by that this week. So I'll just say that. So I apologize already. So there's these, uh, these Babylonians. They come in, they conquer the Hebrews, and then they carry a lot of them off into exile. And the king of Babylon, he issues an order, an edict, and he says to all of his top officials, he says, I want you to gather all of the best young men that you can find, the people that we think are going to serve 
our kingdom really well and gather them together. And then I want you to gather them in the same place. And then we're going to feed them the same food and the same royal wine. And we're going to make these guys like the best of the best of the best. And then they're going to be in, forced into service to the king. Okay? So there's four guys... Hebrew guys that are included in this mix. They're kind of taken and they're, gonna, and they're forced into this and they're saying, you're going to serve the king directly as officials in his kingdom, but first we need to prepare you. So you need to eat this royal food and this royal wine for a period of you know, however long it was. The problem is that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these are the four guys, Daniel and these other three guys, these Hebrew men they can't eat some of the royal food and royal wine, otherwise they will defile themselves according to their faith, according to the Old Testament. They're not allowed to eat and drink this stuff, and they know that, and so it puts them into a very, very tough position. The Babylonians rule over them. They are their conquerors. They are the authority over them, and now they've been ushered into, forced into service to this Babylonian king that they don't believe in their gods or their religion, and now they're being forced to eat and drink stuff that they know they're not supposed to. So this forces a really hard decision, doesn't it? So Daniel kind of takes the lead, and he has to make the decision as to what they're going to do. So that's where we're going to pick up the story, is they've been forced into the king's presence and to serve the king, and now they're being forced to eat this food, this royal food and this royal wine, but they have to make this really important decision. Daniel chapter 1, starting with verse 8. <clears throat> but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Now just pause there for a moment. What he's basically saying, it's pretty simple, right? Daniel says, hey, I'm asking for permission not to eat this food and drink this wine. And the official is kind of like, you can tell, he's kind of open to it. He's like, well, I don't know. Here's the issue. I kind of fear the king. Rightly so. The king has absolute power. He can lop his head off if he wants. And so what he's worried about is everybody else is drinking the wine and everybody else is having the royal food. And he thinks what's going to happen is he parades all these young men in before the king. And then these four guys who didn't eat the royal food and the royal wine, they're going to look worse. And he's like, then he's going to look to somebody to blame and he's going to point at me and he's going to be like, did you feed him like I told you to? Well, and then at that point, he thinks he loses his life. That's what he's scared about. Okay, so go on. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the four Hebrew guys, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. By the way, just side note, this is just my own thought. I wonder how everybody else felt about that. 
right? I mean, seriously, like, he looks at him like, you guys look good. These guys, not so much. They've been playing too much Xbox and eating donuts, right? I mean, and, they, and they're like, okay, everybody gets vegetables and water, and everybody else is like, stupid Daniel, keep your mouth shut, <laughs> right? I mean, that's kind of what I'm wondering is going on, but then this is really cool. Listen to this last one, because I'm going to come back to this. This last verse, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Now, I want you to notice something really important about this story. This king forced them into his service. They conquered these Hebrew people. And now he says, you have to eat this food and you have to eat this wine and you're going to serve me. This is a pagan heathen king according to their faith. They, he does not believe in the one true God. He doesn't believe in Jesus. He doesn't believe in Christianity. He's not following the same faith at all as them. Completely different. And now he says, you have to eat this. You have to defile your own faith and do something that you know you're not supposed to do, okay? This is like if somebody came in and conquered us and then forced you to bow down to and worship a statue of Satan. You would know that you can't do that. You would know that. But when you're under threat of your life, what would you do? See, Daniel is saying, and this is what's crazy. Notice what Daniel didn't do in this story. Here's what Daniel didn't do. Daniel didn't come out fist swinging and saying, you listen here, you Babylonians. I am not eating that nasty food or that nasty wine because our God is awesome and way better than your gods and goddesses. And so I'm not eating your food and wine. He didn't do that, did he? Do you see that in there? I just read the story straight out of Scripture. That's not what he did. Daniel didn't go in and say, you have no authority over us. I'm not listening to you. You just conquered us. I'm not listening to that. He didn't do that. What did Daniel do? Interesting. Did you notice what he did first? He went to the chief official, and what did he do? It says he asked if they could not eat the royal food and the royal wine and defile themselves. He asked politely. Would you please allow us not to eat this? And then what was the response? The response was, well, I'm kind of scared of the king, so I really want you to eat it. You know, that, they're having a conversation. And so Daniel, using incredible discernment, he realizes, why does he want me to eat this royal food and this royal wine? Why does he want me to do that? The reason is because he's scared of the king and he thinks that if we eat this stuff, we're going to be healthier and better fit and we're going to look better for the king. That's what he wants. And so Daniel comes up with this incredible plan based on his discernment, doesn't he? His decision is pretty amazing. He says, okay, I propose this. Let's do a test. Have you ever come up with this? This is pretty good. He's like, let's have a test. You give me and these other three guys, these Hebrew guys, vegetables and water. This is where we get the whole Daniel fast thing. Have you heard of the Daniel fast? This is where we get it, okay? Vegetables and water. And he says, after 10 days, let's see who's healthier. Daniel already knows who's going to be healthier. He already knows. But he says, let's just see. Let's see what happens. And then the official's like, 
at the end of 10 days, clearly you guys are doing pretty well. These guys, not so much. And now, not only do they not have to eat the royal food and the wine, the chief official gets rid of that stuff, and he makes everybody else eat it. That was just a sidebar. That's not what Daniel intended, but that's what happened. The discernment led to an amazing decision. See, what happens is, I don't know about you, but if you have seen, in our culture, here's what we tend to do. We tend to take one extreme of this or the other, don't we? We come out swinging, and we're like, Jesus says I should not do that. And you get out of my face, and we post something on social media, and we're like, I have a zinger for you. Because social media's fed me a lot of good stuff. What did that guy say that one time when I was scrolling? Yeah, that was really good. Yeah. And we tag onto it, and we, whoo, we shout at others, and we say, don't touch me. Right? That's, what, that's not what Daniel does. But neither did Daniel say, oh, yeah, you believe whatever you want. You do whatever you want. You call yourself whatever you want. You go wherever you want to go. It's totally fine. Daniel doesn't do that either. This is the hard part of being a follower of Christ. We have to kind of find this very critical line between discernment and decision where our discernment needs to help us understand we need to take a stand for our faith. And yet, we also don't want to lose our seat at the table. Am I right? I mean, why do we sometimes not take a stand? Because we're worried that we're going to lose our voice at the table. Anybody heard of cancel culture, maybe? I think this is a real relevant thing, isn't it? We fear these things, don't we? And what Daniel is, is trying to do is he's trying to avoid the situation. Here's what we tend to do. In our culture today, anyway, we shout at everybody else, and we let everybody else know what we believe and what we think. We're like, hey, this is how it is. This is what my God says, and you need to adhere to that. And then what do we do as a result of that? Well, they go off, and they, we, we let them know very clearly, you, you don't belong at our table. This is the Christian table. You can go over there at your heathen table. That's what we now, I know we don't say that because that would be incredibly crass and rude. But we basically say that when we're saying, hey, get on my train, my train, or the highway. Like, here or not. And all of a sudden, you know what we have? You know what, you know what our society is becoming? We're not becoming more unified. We're becoming more tribal. We're becoming more tribal. We are shunning people, and what we're doing is we're huddling at our own tables and launching grenades, usually verbally, on everybody else's tables and why your tables are wrong. And what Daniel does here is amazing. He says, listen, I, I believe that what I'm living and what I'm doing is the right way of life. I, I do believe that. But let's just test this out and see what you think. Would you just be willing to test it out? See what you have, what you think. Have, after, after 10 days, okay, we'll, we'll do what we need to do. We'll see where we go from here. But let's test this out. What is he doing? He's trying to keep everybody at the same table and yet stand firm in their faith. They don't want to negotiate their faith, but they also want to stay at the table. What, 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 what would happen if Daniel would have come out swinging? 
Be like, chief official, I don't know who you are, but we're not eating that stuff. So you can just leave us alone. You know what? Two things are going to happen. One, they're going to force them to eat the food and the wine anyway. Or they're going to say, you know what? These four are problem makers. Oh, let's kill them. The king has absolute power. He can do that. The Babylonians were pretty cruel people. You look at history, they were brutal people. This is a very likely outcome. Daniel knows that. How can we stand firm in our faith and yet stay at the table? And by the way, did you notice what I read at the end of that section? Let me, let me read verse 17 again. What happens as a result of this? To these four young men, Daniel and the other three guys, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Notice what the implications of this is. If you live your life in a way where you discern first before you make a decision, if you commit to live your life where you're going to say, I'm going to listen, what does God want for me in this decision? What does God want for my life before I make this decision? If you discern first what God is saying and then make the decision, what God shows, at least for Daniel and these other three guys, and by default possibly for you, is if you choose to live that way, God may gift you with even better discernment, which will lead to even better decisions. Hmm. Discernment leads to good decisions, which leads to better discernment, which leads to better decisions. Interesting. But now I want to take you to a second story. It's the story that we all know a little bit better. Most people haven't heard about the royal food and wine story in Daniel. We skip over that part. We go to the more sensational one. We like Daniel and the lion's den, you know, because we teach that one to kids, you know. We also leave out some of the gory details, usually, when we teach it to kids. But it's true. That's, that's the story that we think about when we think about Daniel. We think Daniel and the lion's den, it just kind of goes together. So let's talk about that. What, what happened with this? Well, because Daniel was really discerning and really good decision-maker, the king elevates him to a very high position in the kingdom. He becomes a very high elevated official, okay? And so as a result, when somebody is high and elevated, when somebody gets a promotion and then somebody gets another promotion and then that same person gets another promotion, it's like, man, they really like that guy or they really like that gal. Say it's your company. What happens? What are the conversations around that when that happens? I already know what they are. I can't believe they gave that to them. Oh, they're always doing everything right. Right? Or are you all standing around the, the, the water fountain or on Zoom calls now? <laughs> We're all huddled around Zoom and saying, man, I'm so happy for that person. Man, that person deserves it. Man, that's awesome. I'm so glad they get like double salary instead of me. This is amazing. Probably not. Usually. It's not usually. That's not even my response usually either. I'm just, I'm not calling you out. I'm calling myself out. It's just human tendency. And so there were a lot of officials in the Babylonian kingdom that are jealous of, da uh, of Daniel because Daniel keeps getting elevated and elevated and elevated. And pretty soon Daniel's like kind of second, uh, second, third, fourth in command of the entire kingdom. I'm like, why does this Hebrew guy, he's a foreigner. He's not even a Babylonian. And he's like right under the king. And so they're jealous. So you know what they do? Well, they have to attack him. They have to tear him down. They have to destroy his reputation. Here's the problem. 
Daniel had no character flaws for them to attack. They're like, well, maybe we could, no, that Daniel never has a problem with that. Maybe we could, no, we can't do that. And you know what they did? They used his greatest strength against him. Here's what they did. They tricked the king into signing a law that said you cannot pray to any divine being or deity other than the king himself for 30 days. You have to pray only to the king. Now, seriously, we think, um, okay, I mean, I don't know how big it is. What, what if I declared all of a sudden next Sunday, I got up here and said, so I'm, I'm instituting a new thing for our church. You can't pray to Jesus. You can't pray to God. You can't pray through the Holy Spirit. You have to pray to Pastor Brent. And I'm going to solve all your problems. How many of you would stay at this church for very long? I hope you would leave. I really do. If I ever say something like that, please leave. Because that's wrong. But that's exactly what they did. And they knew. Why did they do that? Because they knew Daniel was so faithful, he's not going to change. Oh, we got him. We got him on his one strength. We've, we've got him. And so the king is tricked into signing this law. Here's what I want to do. I want to read for you the very next thing that Daniel does after he learns that it is now illegal, according to the king, for him to pray. Let me read what it says. Daniel 6, verse 10. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down, notice, as usual, in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, notice this next phrase, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. So, Daniel did two things here, notice. First of all, Daniel kept doing what he's always been doing. He didn't change anything. He just prayed like he's always prayed. Here's what he didn't do. He didn't go into his room, throw open the windows, and lean out of the windows and say, I am praying because these Babylonians have no power over me, so forget you all. Oh, Lord, praying as loud as he can. He didn't do that. But neither did he close the window so nobody could hear him. He did, he prayed as usual, as he always did. He didn't change anything, which was a big deal because now it's illegal. It is actually a threat on his life to do so. Before, it was just something that he did because he knew it was faithful. Now he's doing it because he needs to be faithful, but it's also illegal. Hmm. Daniel didn't run out into the square and say, I'm going to start praying now to stick it to all you heathens. He just did what he always does. I'm going to talk to God. I don't care if a king signed a law. I'm supposed to talk to my heavenly father, and that's what I'm going to do. He went as usual and did what he normally does. Now, the problem is, of course, this puts the king in a tough position because he elevated Daniel for a reason. He loves Daniel. He's like, man, Daniel is an amazing official. Daniel is the one that interpreted some of his dreams and, and really saved the king's life. And so he's like, Daniel is really, really valuable to me. And now, these guys tricked him into signing this law. And you know what the first thing the administrators did, the ones that are jealous of Daniel? What did they do? They went right to the king as soon as Daniel started praying and saying, Hey, guess what, king? 
So you remember that law that you just signed? Daniel's not praying to you. He's praying to his God. And this is what it says about the king. Notice this. This is interesting. Daniel 6.14. Hearing this, hearing that Daniel was praying, the king was deeply troubled. Not a little troubled. He was deeply troubled. And he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. Now, I want you to notice the huge chasm here between Daniel and the king. Daniel has been using discernment. He's been listening to what God is telling him he should do, and then he makes a decision. The king has no discernment. He didn't listen to Daniel. He clearly didn't seek Daniel's advice. He didn't listen to any other discernment, and he just makes a snap decision. You know what happened? We all know what happened. The administrators are like, hey, king. They didn't talk about Daniel. They didn't talk about the Hebrews. They said, hey, king, we have a good idea. We think everybody should pray to you instead of praying to their own gods and goddesses. And the king was like, that's a good idea. I am pretty awesome. That'll make me more powerful as a king. I mean, prayer's coming directly to me. They're looking to me to solve their, their whole life. Wow, I like that law. Let's do it. Stupid law. He just condemned one of his best officials to death. And he knows it now. Do you see the difference between discernment before decision and just making a decision? Now, some of you, you don't have to take this to a crazy degree. When you go to lunch today, okay, I'm not suggesting that you have to hit your knees at the counter and be like, Lord, which greasy, nasty stuff should I order right now? Which one will you bless more? You can if you want. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not saying we have to go to the crazy level. But I am saying when you have decisions in life to make, and I would say the bigger, the more important, the more directional the decision in your life, the longer and the more deeply you should discern what God is saying. Because it will impact your life and a lot of other people's lives around you just like the king's decision impacted Daniel's life. And you guys know what the story was, right? Daniel prays as usual, and so the king doesn't find a loophole. He can't find a loophole because there is no loophole, and so he has to go along with his own stupid decision, and he has Daniel thrown in the lion's den, sealed up for all night. Now, these lions were kept hungry for a reason, so that as soon as you throw somebody in, they will tear them to pieces. But God miraculously shuts the mouths of the lions. That's literally what it says in the book of Daniel. Shuts the mouths of the lions, and so Daniel is miraculously saved. And they open up in the morning, and the king is like, Daniel's alive! That's amazing! And you know what happens? The opposite of what the administrators all wanted, because they were jealous of David, he elevates Daniel even more after that. Talk about good discernment, right? And he makes this crazy decision. Here's what Daniel illustrates so well. So we have a lot of Christianese phrases in Christianity, and you can probably hear a lot of those. I want to give you one of those. And, and maybe you've heard this phrase a lot. Maybe you've never heard this phrase. Some of you grew up hearing this phrase. Some of you have had conversations with other followers of Jesus, other Christians about this phrase. And some of you are like, I've never even heard that phrase. That's okay, and everybody in between. But this illustrates a great balance and difficult thing that we have between discernment and decision. 
So there's this Christianese phrase that we often say that followers of Jesus are supposed to be in the world, but not of it. Have you heard that phrase? We're supposed to be in the world, but we can't be of the world. In it, we live here, but not of it. How many of you know what that means? A couple of you? Okay, cool. I, I struggle with knowing what that means sometimes, but I want to take a stab at it. So, first of all, where does that Christianese phrase come from? It comes from Jesus himself, actually. At the Last Supper, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and this is what he says, John 15, 18 through 19. Follow this. It's kind of hard to follow, but, but it's, it's all saying the same thing. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then a little while later, Jesus is praying, and this is what he says as he's talking to God the Father. Jesus says, Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, he's talking about the disciples, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, or in other words, purify them, in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so as Christians, here's what we've done. We've, we've taken that whole thing, because I don't know about you, but that's a lot of words, and we've kind of doled it down into this phrase. We need to be in the world. We have to live here, but we can't be of the world. Now, this is one of the hardest phrases that we have to live by. These are Jesus' words. We have to live by them. It's non-negotiable. And it's one of the hardest things because what it does is it forces us to live in a world that doesn't want what we have and doesn't want to believe what we believe. We have to live in this world. We can't go start a new colony on Mars and be like, we're going to start a Christian colony on Mars where we can have all followers of Christ and we're just going to worship all day long and we're going to have a band and we're going to do our thing and then we don't have to argue and we don't have to vote on politics and we don't have to do all that stuff. First of all, not possible to do that. Second, we're actually not supposed to do that. We are called to live in this world, but we're also called not to be of this world. Now the truth is, our culture, and I know I'm going to dig in a little bit here, our culture, our world, is trying to redefine everything in our life right now, aren't they? They're redefining truth, they're redefining science, they're redefining literally everything. Hmm. I know, this is where we get uncomfortable. We're redefining literally everything in this world. And they're saying, this is, they're calling this truth when it's not. And it's going against everything that God is saying and what He's calling us to live according to. And here we are at these different tables and we're further fracturing ourselves. We're finding our own tables and we're shouting at everybody else's tables. 
And what I would say is, because of this reality, it's really, really critical in this moment, in these days, to realize more than ever that we need to be very much in the world, but not of this world. You need to be here. You need to be at the table. But while you're at the table, you can't do these two things that we tend to do in our culture today. Discernment should tell you what you need to do each time. What is God saying that I should do? What is God saying that I should say? What is God saying how I should vote? Do you understand why at Northridge we don't tell you who to vote for? Because I believe God will let you know. I believe God will let you know. Do, I, do you know why I don't tell you like, well, this is the job you should have? Because I don't know. God knows, but I don't. Discernment is you simply seeking God. Asking what He knows and what He's saying. And I wonder... What would happen in our lives as followers of Christ if we stopped listening to the opinions of all of the people around us or the social media feeds that are feeding us? And, and let me just call it out one more time. You know, when you pull this out, you know what all of the social media platforms are doing? You know what they're doing, okay? Let me tell you what they're doing. They have algorithms, and they know what you like. They know what you're shopping for. They do. I know we've made fun of that and be like, I'm going to talk about uh, knitting needles. And some of you know, later today, you know what I'm going to get an ad for? Knitting needles. They're going to be like, knitting needles on sale. I'm like, I hate knitting needles. I know. Oh, but I said it earlier. Okay? I'm not going to that level of conspiracy theory, but here's what I do know. This phone... And these algorithms, they know what you look at, they know what you like, they know what you click on, and they feed you more of that as much as they possibly can. Why? Because if they can keep you on there, they can sell you whatever they want. What if we abandoned Google and we abandoned opinions of others and our social media feed clickbait Instead of using that for our decisions, we actually got on our faces before God and discerned what God is saying to us. Hmm. Let me just ask you this. Would you prefer to follow Google or follow God? <laughs> I would love to just take you in to meet some of the people in charge of Google. I'm not saying they're evil, but what they're doing is they're trying to make as much money as possible off your decisions. God is not trying to make as much money off of you as possible. He's trying to give you the most full, satisfied, amazing life that he can possibly give to you. That's what he's trying to do. Which one do you, would you like to discern and listen to? See, this world is trying to shove us away from God. You may not believe that. I'm here to tell you they are. Our culture, our world is trying to drag us away, push us away from God as fast as possible because they don't believe that what we believe is true or is healthy or is right. 
They're trying to pull you and push you away from God. In fact, let me just kind of show this to you, the last little thing I'm going to say about Daniel. I'm going to take you all the way back to the very first chapter. I didn't read this part on purpose, obviously. But guess what? The very first thing that the Babylonians did to these four Hebrew guys when they got into the kingdom. You know what the first thing is that they did? Let me read it for you. Daniel chapter 1, you can read this for yourself, verse 7. The chief of staff, who serves the king, renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. Now, I don't know about you, but have you heard of the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Those are their Babylonian names. Those are not their Hebrew names. We know them. I, I had to look up their Hebrew names. I, don't, I never remember their Hebrew names. I remember I can rattle off Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego like nothing. But I was like, man, what were their Hebrew names? So I had to look it up. I was like, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'll have to work to get that down. Because I don't know them by their names. Now, let me take this, and let, let's leave those names up there for a minute, Kim. Okay? Leave those names up there. I want to tell you, this is why they did that. You might be, uh, why did they do that? Let me tell you exactly why they did that. Okay? Let me go through this. Just watch these names. Daniel, if you take this literal meaning in Hebrew, it means God is my judge. God is my authority. But the name Belteshazzar translated in Babylonian, means Bel, which is a Babylonian god, protects my life. Hmm. A little different. Hananiah in Hebrew means the Lord is grace. But the given name, the Babylonian name, Shadrach, catch this, means command of Aku, a Babylonian god. Next one, Mishael. Mishael in Hebrew means who is God. Meshach means who is Aku. Again, Babylonian God. And then the last one, Azariah in Hebrew means the Lord helps. Abednego means servant of Nebo, another Babylonian God. Interesting, isn't it? The very first thing the Babylonians did was they said, we need to rename everything. We need to, rename, we need to act like God and their faith does not exist because we don't want them returning to that because that's dangerous. We want them completely enculturated to go the way that we want them to go and eat the food we want to eat and make the decisions we want them to make. Does this sound familiar at all? Hmm. And people say the Bible's not relevant. Interesting. The truth is, our culture and our world is trying to drag you away from God. It's true. The question is, are you allowing them to? Are you? Have you allowed them to drag you away from God? Because that's, that's what the world is attempting to do. Renaming everything. Saying, God, clearly we've moved on. We are postmodern culture. You know what that means? It means, well, we believed in God one, at one point, but we've moved on. I just summarized postmodern culture. 
And that's what our country is. Our country is postmodern. So the question is discernment. See, because discernment leads to decision. Decision leads to action. Action leads to where you're headed. And where you're headed, your direction leads to outcome. But it all starts with discernment. So I leave you with this question this morning. Are you discerning God's will? Are you discerning what God wants? Are you discerning when you make decisions what God says? Because if you're not, then what is happening? Is Google and your phone and the opinions and the politics around us are actually showing you and guiding you and forcing you on the path that you're following. The only way to not follow the path that everybody else wants you to do is to follow somebody else's path. And my suggestion is, follow God's. And how do you know what path that is? Discernment. Pause. Pray. Seek what God's voice says to you. And then act then make a decision, but not before. I'll leave you with this. There's a pastor, um, he was sharing, I don't know, it was probably three years ago, I think. I don't even remember uh, exactly why he was sharing this, uh, but he was sharing this with a, group, a, a whole room full of pastors, and he said, he said, pastors, I've realized this. He says, now what I do sometimes, <clears throat> and I think he does this most mornings, but he goes in and he has kind of this prayer time very, very early in the morning. I, he gets up at like, I don't know, five in the morning or some crazy, crazy hour, whatever. I was like, can I do that at eight? <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, but he gets up really early in the morning and, and he goes into this room and he closes the door and he starts talking to God, but then he listens to God and he doesn't leave the room now until God gives him peace that he is where he's supposed to be. He literally doesn't walk out of the room until God gives him peace. In other words, he's like, I, I know that I'm going to go out and live my life and make decisions today based on my strength if I walk out of that door early. Now again, I, I personally don't even do that, but I'm just saying that gives us an idea we need to wrestle with what God wants and allow him to tell us and then act accordingly. Are you discerning what God wants? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, in this moment, just want to pause. Just for a few moments, Lord, uh, I just want to sit here in this moment and, and I'm not going to talk because my voice can be distracting. And as every person just has their eyes closed and their heads down just so that they can focus on whatever you want to say to them. I pray that you would just speak to each one of us in this moment. That 
that we would hear your voice, that we would discern what you want to say to us. So in these next few moments, may we just listen for your still, small, quiet voice. And may we respond accordingly. Speak to us.